Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Since the protests over the Dakota Access Pipeline, legislation to criminalize pipeline protests has been introduced in 22 states and passed in nine, including Iowa and Indiana. The laws make it a crime to trespass on public land used for critical infrastructure. The penalties differ from state to state, but there are steep fines and prison time for violators. There's also uh, protesters are held responsible for damage incurred. An Illinois version of the so-called pipeline protest bill sailed through the Illinois House earlier this year before meeting resistance and dying in the Senate. With me now is Dallas Goldtooth. He is the Keep It in the Ground organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network and a veteran of the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Thanks for joining us, Dallas Goldtooth. Hey, I'm very much, I'm very happy to be on the call here today. You know, I was um, reading in The Intercept over the weekend about uh, the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association, and they are the folks who are behind some of these uh, attempts to legislate uh, criminalization of the pipeline protests. And uh, when when you're looking at this situation and seeing state after state pass these uh, bills and it's introduced in a bunch more, what what is your idea about what's going on here? Well, I think it's nothing more than just an obvious example of how the oil or the fossil fuel industry is colluding with the, uh, elected officials to, you know, um, silence people's right to uh, to assert their First Amendment right. I think that it's what we're seeing is the fossil fuel industry really seeing the writing on the wall and seeing a threat to their bottom line with all this organizing activism and, you know, amazing work that states and local municipalities and common people are doing to address climate change. And so they're doing their very best to uh, protect that bottom line by working with, uh, you know, legislators to pass these anti-protest laws. Well, how do you respond when you hear the tape of the person from the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers uh, Industry. And he is uh, Derek Morgan, and he spoke at an Energy and Mineral Law Foundation conference in Washington, D.C. And he goes out and uh, says, yeah, we're the, we're the people who are drawing up this legislation and pushing it through. And he, he, he kind of admits this freely and talks about it. Um, wh- uh, wh- how do you listen to what he says? I mean, it's it's atrocious. It's it's disgusting because really, what these these this, what this individual is talking about, and, and and we we've heard numerous you know fossil fuel lobbyists and executives speak on this before about bragging about you know silencing people's right to protest, about pushing through pipeline projects against the the wills of local communities, and what's disgusting about it is that these are the folks that are destroying the planet, and they're they're celebrating it. You know, they're celebrating that they're making more money while the world is getting hotter, while the Arctic is melting, while there's fire, fires happening across the globe, and while there's black and brown folks all across this globe who are literally facing um, starvation and death because of climate change and climate chaos. So that's really what's disturbing and really is why it's needed for outlets like The Intercept and other news outlets to really expose these folks and really show who the enemy is in this case when we're trying to protect 
the planet for the next seven generations and beyond. Well, how much access do um, people who object to pipeline expansion have to their legislators? Uh, it sounds like these these guys from the petrochemical industry have a lot of access and you know are able to write and sail legislation through even a democratically controlled Illinois House uh, pretty easily. You know, I think a lot of folks who have been following, you know, um, you know uh, politics for a while, for multiple generations, we know that, you know, lobbyists have a, a tremendous amount of access to our elected officials, especially lobbyists who work for the fossil fuel industry and for organizations like ALEC, uh, American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a very strong um, arm of the fossil fuel industry for passing legislation, who's also behind a lot of these anti-protest bills that, are ha- that we're seeing across the country being passed. ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, is the institution that is helping kind of craft this language. And the way they're doing it is saying, hey, I'm gonna, you know, we're going to give you millions of dollars to your campaign to get elected in, in exchange. Help us out on this end by passing some legislation that's supportive of our industry. And, you know, I think that the fact that it that we're we're seeing these reports like the intercepts report um, about the, you know, the statements that were made, um, a lot of there's a lot of public discourse within the world of the fossil fuel industry about how to respond to activism and, and quote unquote these activists and organizers is something of a good thing because it shows that we're, we're doing something that's creating change. We're actually making an impact. If these guys are afraid and they're actually talking about how to respond to us, it means that we're doing something really well as far as addressing um, the, the concerns of climate chaos and, and, and reining in the power of the fossil fuel industry over our public process, our, our, our public legislative process. I'm talking with Dallas Goldtooth. He's Keep It in the Ground organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network, and we're talking about some of the legislation uh, that has been passed in nine states that would increase uh, protesters' penalties if they were uh, use, trespassing on public land used for critical critical infrastructure, which is uh, oil pipelines in this case. I wonder how you could, if you could explain how this kind of uh, legislation dovetails with things that um, the executive is doing. I know President Trump has signed some executive orders uh, earlier this year to facilitate approval of pipeline projects at a federal level, and you're a plaintiff in a case that is challenging some of these executive orders. Um, how, do, how do these things work together? I mean, they're going hand in hand. Like, So let's go back in time just before um, the, uh, the election of President Trump in the fall of 2016, you had the executive for um, for the Energy Transfer Partners, which is the company that built Dakota Access Pipeline, which is a massive fight, the largest indigenous mobilization we've seen in living memory up in the, the, the nation of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota. And in during the, the late part of that election, just before Trump got elected, you know, the, the, the owner of it, the CEO of Energy Transfer Partners says, hey, I'm not worried. If I, if our guy gets into the into this into the White House, we have no worries. And what happens? Trump gets elected, and literally within four days, one of the first executive actions that Trump does is approve the Dakota Access Pipeline, as well as the Keystone XL Pipeline, which is a pipeline project that we're we're once again fighting against. 
So the industry knows that they have an ally in the White House who is supportive of building more fossil fuel infrastructure when climate science and traditional indigenous knowledge knows that we have to go the other way and see a rapid reduction of fossil fuel production in order to save this planet. And so the industry knows that. But they also know that we've, we, we as organizers and, and, and climate activists and people who are fighting for climate justice know that we, we have found ways to slow down that, slow down the, the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure on a national level. So the industry is going to the state level, and the, uh, the municipal level, to see how they can pass legislation to you know silence our voices, to push through local legislation. So it's just like back and forth, back and forth fighting. And I think in response to that, I, I want to answer a question or answer a question you asked before about money that's going into that's going to candidates are going to politicians. It's one of the reasons why our my organization I work for the Indigenous Environmental Network signed the um, no fossil fuel pledge. And we're asking elected people who are running for um, president for um, to be president to sign the pledge to not take any money from the fossil fuel industry. And so far, a good amount of the Democratic uh, uh, candidates have signed this pledge, and we're asking more folks to sign this pledge so that they can be held accountable for who, where they're getting their money from and who's influencing them. So I've been reading that um, Elizabeth Warren says that if she's elected president, she'll revoke improperly granted permits for the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone XL Pipeline. Um, other candidates, Bernie Sanders, Yulan uh, Castro, they've made a, a similar pred- pledge that was uh, organized by Bold Nebraska, which is a, a group in Nebraska that's been fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. Yeah, this, it's it's really great to see that the Democratic uh, candidates have been really stepping up to the plate. What even though the the DNC, the National Committee has rejected any opportunity for us to have a conversation, a sincere conversation about climate change uh, with a national debate. The candidates have been stepping up and making sure that the language of climate change is a part of their their platforms. And we're doing our best job on the ground to hold these folks accountable to make sure that not only are they including language around climate change, but they're also including the, the proper steps to address climate change. And one of those things that we, we created, we worked with Bold Nebraska in creating that pledge to make sure that when whoever gets in the office, the first action, one of the first actions they should do is to reject and uh, revoke the approval of Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and, you know, on the flip side of that, we have been fighting in the courts, Trump's approval of, of the Keystone XL pipeline um, back and forth. So we're doing everything we can to try to fight these projects, even so much as I myself am personally suing the state of South Dakota and the governor of state uh, of South Dakota, Christine Nome. For the anti, um, so for so-called riot-boosting laws in the state of South Dakota, which are anti-protest, anti-First Amendment laws that, that that have been passed there. Can you explain what that challenge is about? How do you challenge the legality of of a law that's been passed? Even if you, if you don't like some of these criminality laws, uh, may, are, they, are they legal? Yeah. Well, um, that's a really good question. I think that. We're working with the ACLU. The ACLU South Dakota is representing me as well as a number of other plaintiffs in this case. And really, it's just, to me, it seems common sense here. Um, what the riot boosting law in South Dakota, which passed, the governor signed it into law. It's on the books right now. What it says is that if somebody, if um, 
I'll say here's a good example. What and, and this is actually the the governor herself says yes. That's that's a scenario that this could be applied to. Is if someone in Chicago sees that there's a protest happening in South Dakota that's a legal, you know, has all the permits protest against uh, a pipeline project there. And they say, oh, that looks like a good event. I can't go, but I'm going to share it on Facebook. I'm going to share this event. And if at that event, some person that has nothing to do with the planning, has nothing to do with this protest that's just there, instigates something, causes some violence, or a police say, hey, that that was riot behavior, the person who shared that Facebook post in Chicago could legally be held liable for the damages caused. That's simple as that. That's the, and that's, that would be labeled as riot boosting. Me as an individual, I'm Dakota. I grew up in South Dakota. My family's from South Dakota. I'll, my, my history, my, my ancestors come from that land. That, is, that was there long before South Dakota even existed. If I encourage and say, hey, relatives, there's a public protest people are doing. People are going to be using their First Amendment rights. You should go there. I give some gas money to my cousin to go. And then if a cop if the sheriff of that county decides, oh, somebody threatened me or someone did some threatened behavior and it's a riot, I could be held liable for actions of people I don't even know who had nothing to do with the planning of that event. That's that, what that effectively does is it discourages people from promoting these events. It's going to discourage people from even saying, hey, I should go out and speak up, speak my mind. It's already happened. There's an organization, there's a, a youth group who works uh, on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. They work with homeless native youth. They're, all, you know, they're trying to find transitional homing, uh, living for, for a lot of youth who turn 18. And they also do organizing around political issues like the pipeline. Their funder dropped them. Their, their primary funder said, we can't fund you no more because you, you, you all are interested about fighting this pipeline project and we're worried about the legal liability that we may carry. So they dropped, They got lost their funding for for their organization just because an outside organization got scared. That's what these laws do. Their intention is to scare people from speaking up, and we feel like that is a direct threat against our First Amendment rights as citizens. I'm talking with Dallas Goldtooth, Keep It in the Ground organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network. We're talking about the riot-boosting of legislation in South Dakota and uh, some other places uh, where there's similar legislation on the books. And um, how do you um, explain what's happened with the Dakota Access Pipeline? Because I don't think most people follow regularly what's going on with the court cases and um, mm-hmm. uh, how it's what twists and turns have, there have been. Yeah, so the Dakota Access Pipeline was completed. It's it started in the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota, and it was being to transport crude oil down to Potoka, Illinois. Um, so they completed that project after months and months of a standoff, after our water protectors and tribes and people all across the world who spoke up were able to to basically get over, I think, $4 billion divested out of the fossil fuel industry because of that fight and struggle. And the energy transfer partners alone lost over a billion dollars because of that fight. Right now, energy transfer partners is trying to expand the capacity of their pipeline um, to carry double the amount of oil. And so there's a number of organizations, the same ones who got involved in the Dakota Access Pipeline in the very beginning, who are going through the regulatory process to make sure that that 
expansion of capacity does not happen. Meanwhile, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe still has an active lawsuit happening because of what they consider, and I consider, I think we all consider, is, is the illegal and improper approval of that project. They were never properly consulted. There was a lot of exaggeration of numbers. There's a lot of misinformation that was given by the company. And so the, the, the tribe is still saying, hey, even though this pipeline is still on the ground, we still have our grievances. We still need our time in court to say that everything about this entire from the very beginning to the proposal to the construction was flawed. And we have to be we have to not only hold the company accountable, but we have to hold federal agencies who approve this project without our consideration accountable as well, including the Army Corps of Engineers. So people are still fighting Dakota Access Pipeline, um, if not on the ground, at least in the courts. So what would happen if you won that case and you they they found that this working pipeline was you know Ill, illegally gotten? Well, this the as far as I understand, I'm not a, a plaintiff on the case, but as it's been broken down to me, and I'm not a legal expert, but it's saying this, you know, the tribe's saying shut it down if if it was not properly cited. If it was um, improperly approved, if it did not meet the requirements of a proper uh, approval, if it broke a number of laws, even including um, consultation with the tribe, then shut it down. It should be stopped. That's that's from from my as I understand the tribe's perspective on this. You know, of course they could say, well, let's just you know the uh, the proponents of the pipeline could say, well, let's just we'll just write you a check. For, home, for your damages. And the tribe's like, no, there's, there's, we can't be compensated with money for this. We have to really address the bigger picture here. And the idea that, um, that they would double the size of the pipeline, um, why does that happen? That seems like, uh, you know, you've got a proposal that goes through years and years of stuff, and then it starts going, and then you double the size of it? Uh, what's up with that? So they're basically to make it to double the capacity, they would have to they would install bigger pumps. So the the pipeline itself would not physically be changed to grow any bigger. They would just um, um, step up the number of pumps and transmission uh, the um, tra- the power that's going to those pumps to push more oil quicker through it. So what that effectively is doing is increasing the amount of pressure on these pipeline projects. And as science has told us, as numerous engineers who build these pipelines have said, that there is no 100% safe pipeline. That's not a matter of if a pipeline will break or spill. It's a matter of when and where. And that's the really the crux of the whole fight was like it's too much risk. There's too much risk to the drinking water of millions of people, to the agricultural and pastoral lands of those in, along its route. And it's too much risk to the overall climate because all that oil is being put into the air at some point through carbon emissions. Dallas Coldtooth is Keep It in the Ground organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network. Thanks for joining us and talking about what's happened with the Dakota Access Pipeline and some of the um, anti-pipeline legislation that's been flying around in the States. Thanks a lot for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about some of the surprises at the G7 Summit. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The G7 summit in France offered an interesting display of the fissures in relations between the seven leading economic powers and in the power of the host, Emmanuel Macron, to put a stamp on the direction things are going on several issues. Maxime Larive is a research associate at the EU Center of Excellence at the University of Miami, and we are going to chat about the G7 summit now and uh, Emmanuel Macron. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. At the end of the summit there, Emmanuel Macron uh, made this pitch that President Trump and um, Iran's President Rouhani get together and and re- rethink what's going on. Um, how, how, do you, how do you think uh, President Macron did with his pitch to patch things up between the U.S. and Iran? Yeah, you know, the... Um the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has been a strong advocate of the Iran deal uh, way before, uh, you know, the G7 uh, summit that, that concluded today in, in Biarritz. And, and he has made the point and the case uh, working with the U.S. president uh, in 2018 to, to make sure to keep the U.S. inside the, the agreement. So... This is no secret that for Emmanuel Macron walking and making sure that the U.S. can be brought back into negotiation either within the existing framework or a new type of framework uh, is an important step. So uh, I think, uh, you know, that that fits very well what Macron has been trying to accomplish uh, over the last years. And the, the surprise visit of the uh, foreign minister of Iran, that um – how do you think that really played out? Because every, people were saying, wow, he, they did it. President Trump didn't even know. President Trump later said, yeah, I knew. I don't care. I don't want to talk to him. Uh, well, how do you, what, what's the strategy on something like that, do you think? Yeah, well, you know, the beginning of the G7 summit, before the summit kicked in, uh, Emmanuel Macron addressed, you know, kind of the nation and the world in some ways. And say, look, we're not going to have a uh, final communique that all heads of states and governments will be signing. Uh, you wanted to avoid, in some ways, the kind of the, uh, the the failure or kind of the what happened in Canada earlier. Earlier, so based on several reports, uh, press reports, uh, it seems that uh, Emmanuel Macron was quite clear uh, right away in addressing uh, President Trump and saying, look. Um, the, the foreign minister of Iran, uh, Mohammed uh, Javad Zarif, will be coming. And, and so I think he walked on the personal level. Uh, you know, I, it, it is difficult to assess, but listening to um, EU ambassadors, I mean, European ambassadors, and, and through press, uh, we know that there is this strong connection between the French president and the American president. And we know as well that the American president likes dealing at the highest level directly with leaders. So I think along those lines, uh, it went along those lines. Uh, You know, it's interesting to see their relationship. I mean, President Trump uh, really liked President Macron and wanted to model a, a parade after the military parade in France. And uh, but now it seems like they're at loggerheads on on almost every issue. Um, they, there was um, a big trade dispute that's cropped up between the U.S. and France. And Emmanuel Macron has this uh, technology tax that he's been uh, been wanting, even on an EU level. 
And President Trump has pushed back really hard uh, against that. Uh, could you explain a little about uh, the president's thinking about this technology, Jack, President Macron? That's right. So uh, President Macron has been uh, working on this uh, digital tax uh, uh, that law, which was uh, passed and approved at the French level uh, in July, uh, applies a 3% tax on the revenue of tech companies uh, that has at least $845 million in global revenue and digital sales of roughly uh, $30 million euros. Uh, $30 million in France. So this only applies to 30 companies, mostly American. So that would be, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Microsoft. And then some others are Chinese, German, British, and French. The, the idea for the French government was to kick in, in fact, earlier on an EU-wide digital tax. But this did not pass because Ireland, Sweden, and Denmark refused it in November. So the French government said, okay, we're going to push it at the national level, but as well making sure that we could have this negotiation taking place at the EU level, but as well at the international level. Um, so I think that was the beginning. And the president of the United States, uh, along with American companies, were really against it. And the, Fr the American president was threatening putting levy on French wines. But as we know now, uh, there has been some negotiation between the French fin finance minister and the secretary of treasury, and they find some sort of agreement where the French law will remain in place, while at the same time there will be negotiation at the international level via the OECD uh, to find a solution kind of to reform the international tax uh, rules. Based on the new terms, then France will be reimbursing the differences to these American companies and other companies if the tax were to be lower than the 3% already applied today. I'm talking with Maxime Larive, and he's uh, with the EU Center for Excellence at the University of Miami, and we're talking about the G7 summit in France and some of the issues there. Now, this idea of... Um, Taxing, uh, having a digital tax at 3%, I think it, um, it, this is really about, uh, I think it comes from a fairness place from the French president's point of view that, that these really large companies don't pay enough tax in France. They have some uh, sort of relationship with Ireland where they don't really pay a lot of taxes and uh, it it's just seems like they're making a lot of profit in France and in the rest of the EU, and, and they should pay more. That seems to be the, the going idea. Does that sound about right, Maxime? Well, you know, I think this is, for the French government, uh, there is a sense that there is some frustration that large companies are generating high volume of business and they avoid paying taxes. Um, as you know, the French government has been facing some domestic pressures uh, where uh, taxation seems quite unfair. And for the French government, uh, they recognize that that could be a loss of revenue for taxes. And I think that that is a response as well to the transformation of the economy from a much more you know, um, traditional type of economy to now the digital economy that need new type of taxation. So, I mean, if, if President Trump comes back and fires away on French wine, uh, which... You, you know, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like it's not apples and oranges. It seems like it's apples and oranges. It's not the same thing. The, the French wine industry isn't 
uh, evading taxes in the United States. Uh, it's it's just kind of a retribution. It is, and and I think this uh, is the story of foreign policy under the Trump administration, where it seems that there is only one strategy in making uh, partners or enemies or foes uh, bend is by the use of tariffs. And the Trump administration um, seems very keen in using uh, the the great economic uh, power of the United States uh, as as a tool to. Uh, to force uh, allies and enemies uh, to bend their rules and adjust their position uh, to the U.S. I also wanted to ask a question about uh, President Trump's comment uh, that the U.S. was uh, encouraging the G7 to readmit Russia, and Russia was removed in 2014 after invading Crimea. Is but um, Did that come out of the blue, or were people gonna, expecting that kind of thing? No, I mean, uh, this uh, emerged already in Canada a year ago, uh, and this came back on the table. Um, the Europeans, uh, in particular France um, and uh, Germany and Britain, absolutely rejected. Uh, and even the, the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, completely rebuffed uh, the U.S. president in saying that there will, no, uh, they, they will not be readmission of Russia at that time uh, inside the G7. I think uh, it is unclear, but it seems that President Trump uh, mentioned eventually uh, Russia being part of it uh, next year as the U.S. will be uh, leading the G7. But uh, I think it is, it is hard to imagine if most uh, G7 members refuse it. One other issue, um, Boris Johnson was there at the G7 for the, G7 summit for the first time, and uh, Emmanuel Macron has been pretty tough on the backstop issue on Boris Johnson, and it looks like um, they'll be at loggerheads over this. Is Macron going to uh, guarantee a no-deal Brexit for, for the U.K.? You know, I think Macron has been uh, the toughest, but uh, as well the European Union and in particular Donald Tusk um, and some others, members, heads of state and government of the EU have been saying, look, there is no renegotiation of um, of the current deal in place. Um, I, I don't think at that point there will be any opening uh, at all. Uh, now, uh, Boris Johnson is said that, well, if there is no deal, then we will not be paying the 43 billion euros bill that the UK um, owes to the EU. Uh, He frames it as a divorce bill. This is um, unfair to present it along those ways because these are payment of contribution of the UK to the EU budget. Uh, So this is not a divorce bill. This is just what the UK pledged to give to the EU budget at that time. Um, did it, what do you think is going to happen with Boris Johnson in, in the UK here? Do you, do you see any kind of uh, general election in the offing, or uh, how does he get out of this? Uh, that's everybody's guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think this uh, G7 meeting was kind of interesting because uh, when Boris Johnson came to power after the departure of Theresa May, he said that he was not going to follow Theresa May's initial steps of going all around the European capitals. 
And what did he do before going to Biarritz? He went to Berlin, he went to Paris, and he met, uh, you know, the key uh, EU leaders. Uh, then, once in in um, in Biarritz, you know, it was really a balancing act uh, for some sense, where he mentioned that, you know, yes, if there is a US-UK trade deal, it must be balanced, uh, which doesn't seem to be very clear for the US. And, and then on the other side, uh, you know, he, he is dealing with some major problem at home. Maxime Larive is a research associate at the EU Center for Excellence at the University of Miami. And thanks for joining us, Maxime, and talking about the events at the G7 Summit. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll have our food contributor, Monica Eng, and she'll talk about some controversy at the USDA. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Louis Zisco was a plant scientist at the United States Department of Agriculture for more than two decades. His specialty is looking at how climate change will affect plant biology. But when he published a paper last year on how rice is losing significant nutritional value with climate change, he got a surprise. USDA's leadership pulled the press release on the study, and they told the University of Washington, which was also a part of the research, to do the same thing. Worldview Food contributor Monica Eng talked to Ziska about what happened next. Thanks, Jerome. Yep, I recently talked to the veteran scientist from his office at Columbia University. He's now a researcher there because he quit the USDA this summer. He says he did it to protest what he sees as a near silencing of climate science in favor of politics. We talked on the phone about this groundbreaking international study and why he thinks it caused his bosses at USDA to act in ways he says he's never seen. I should note that we contacted the USDA with lots of questions and an offer to talk to us as well. Officials there declined to answer most of our questions or to talk to us, but they did send a statement that basically said they didn't agree that the loss of these rice nutrients would put large populations in rice-consuming countries at nutritional risk. I'm going to read a fuller version of that statement later in the segment where it'll have more context. Anyway, today, Ziska says that at Columbia University, he feels like he has a lot more freedom to speak openly about his climate change research. In fact, it was only earlier this month that Ziska first opened up about the incident to Helena Botmiller-Evich at Politico. I should say she broke the story. But here at Worldview, we're following up. And I started by asking Ziska about the kinds of research he's been doing at the USDA for the last couple of decades. I look at the interactions between plant biology, climate change, and public health. That includes looking at, for example, changes in the pollen season, things related to new pests and diseases, potential toxicity in plants, the effects of climate change and carbon dioxide with respect to plant-based medicines, the effects of carbon dioxide and what it means for the food that you consume. And that's how he got to work on this recent study with scientists from around the country and around the world. It looks at the loss of nutritional value in rice due to increases in CO2 in the air. 
So we wanted to find out whether or not the change in carbon dioxide would have a, a qualitative impact, that is, would it affect the nutritional content of the rice that not only you consume here, but consume globally. And so we worked with this international group. We grew rice in the field, exposing them to carbon dioxide concentrations that were likely to occur before the end of the century. And what we found was really interesting, that as carbon dioxide increased, that is, as the atmosphere became carbon-rich, we were seeing a decline in protein among the different varieties that we were looking at. We used something like 18 different varieties, uh, one or two from the U.S., some from Asia, uh, China, some from different parts of Southeast Asia, some from Japan. And that was uniform. It wasn't just happening for one or two lines. It was happening for a number of the lines. Similarly, we looked at mineral composition, particularly two minerals that are important for human health, iron and zinc, and found that they were also declining. And for most of the B vitamins, we found that, in fact, as carbon dioxide increased, they went down. So I asked him about the working hypothesis on this. Like, what's the mechanism at play? And what we think is happening is that as the, car- as the atmosphere becomes carbon-rich, plants are adapting to that change by making more carbon-rich compounds. But they're doing so at the expense of compounds that require more minerals. So if I have a compound like a vitamin B12, for example, which has a lot of nitrogen in it, well, it's going to be selected against its concentration may go down. But I have a, if I have a compound like alpha-tocopherol, which is vitamin E, uh, it may go up because there's no nitrogen. It's just all basically all carbon. So we think that's a working hypothesis that we want to try and explore further. So while they saw proteins, minerals, and some B vitamins going down, they also saw increases in things like vitamin E and carbohydrates. I was telling you earlier how plants adapt that the atmosphere is becoming carbon-rich. One of the ways they adapt to that carbon-rich atmosphere is by making more carbs. I know it seems silly, but that's what they do. Okay, so this group of scientists from the U.S., China, Japan, and Australia, they do the research on the rice. They turn it into the journal Science Advances. It gets peer-reviewed by other scientists, and even the USDA signs off. Things are looking pretty good. The editors at Science Advances said, hey... You guys, you know, this is pretty impactful here. We we think this might get some press attention once you guys issue a press release. So I contacted USDA, the press office, and said, here's what they suggest. And they said, oh, that's great. We'll do one. And then suddenly everything shifted. The press office said, no, wait, we're hearing back from national program staff. They're saying that the data don't support the conclusions. That had never happened before, ever. Typically, in the process, if you have a concern, you express that concern before the paper is submitted, not after the paper is getting ready to be published. So this was very odd. So I contacted them and said, you know, what's going on? They said they don't think the data support the conclusions. Specifically, USDA officials said, quote, the nutrition program leaders disagreed with the implication in the paper that 600 million people are at risk of vitamin deficiency. They also took issue with some of the Chinese rice consumption data, which they called, quote, out of date. They said only a couple of the varieties actually lost significant B2 vitamins and that rice wasn't really a big contributor of B2 to the Chinese diet anyway. And that's generally what they wrote to Ziska to explain why they killed the press release. And I wrote back and I said, 
no, you're misinterpreting the results. It's like they did a very superficial reading of the paper. And I corrected them and said, hey, if we want to talk about it more, we can. Let's, let's talk. And no response. So at this point, the light over my head sort of went on, and I thought, okay, well, this is not about science anymore. This is about ideology. So they canceled the press release. They, they basically did everything they could to sort of undermine the consequences of the paper, but there was a hitch, and that hitch was that I wasn't alone. Uh, there were many other organizations that were part of this paper, and then the media folks reached out to one of those organizations, University of Washington, and said, oh, no, don't issue a press release. Don't do anything with this. And they were like, what? And the University of Washington people said, let's look at this paper again and decide whether or not this really is, you know, okay, if there's the, maybe there's something screwy about it. Because, hey, USDA gives money to University of Washington, too. They don't want to cross somebody who's a donor. So they looked at it again, and then to their credit, they said, no, we don't see anything wrong with this. We're going to go ahead with our press release. And then other folks went ahead with their press release in spite of USDA's efforts, and it got the attention that it deserved. But the fact that they were trying to not support it per se, that's a, okay, that's a subjective call. You don't have to support every scientific paper that gets published. But the fact that they were saying specifically, oh, the data don't support the conclusions when it had been peer-reviewed and was getting ready to be put in press, that's unprecedented. That doesn't happen in science. Um, and at that point, again, you know, this was a, the straw. I looked at it and thought, no, this is not an organization that I can continue to work for. I've worked working here for 25 years. It was not an easy decision for me to make. I need to look elsewhere. And so I have been very, very fortunate to find a home here at Columbia University at the School of Public Health, continuing to look at these issues with respect to plant biology, climate change, public health that I mentioned earlier. I am very, very fortunate in terms of having a, a top-notch set of faculty who can bring in different perspectives, and I'm hoping that my own ideas, my own research will fit in and synergize work that's already ongoing here. But it's it's really, really nice to be in a location where your work is appreciated, where it's adding to the evidence regarding climate change, where hopefully it can make a difference in terms of our ability to both adapt and to mitigate with respect to that issue. So you're not the first um, government scientist who has expressed concerns about censorship of climate change science and has, no. has left the government over it. What do you think is going on here? I think that at the core of it, science is based on factual evidence. If you disagree with me, then do a set of experiments to show how I'm wrong. And if you do that, if you can show that I'm wrong, that's a good thing. That's what we look for in science. Just like Einstein showed that Newton could be wrong under certain circumstances. But don't just wave your hands and say, oh, I don't believe the results. That isn't how science works. Look at the peer-reviewed literature. If there's something there that we missed, then tell us. Let us improve it. But don't try to block it based on your belief or based on your politics or based on your religion. That's not how the method works. And to ignore it and to say, oh, I don't care what the science says, is 
surreal, especially at the federal level. So what I think has happened is that, and I think as you point out, it's not just, you know, this particular instance, but there are a number of scientists, a number of folks, excellent researchers across the board that are being influenced by this. They're not able to do their jobs. When you look at someone like George Luber, who was the head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control Program on Climate Change and Public Health, where they won't let him go to work and he has an armed guard with him when he does. I've met George. He's a nice guy. He doesn't need an armed guard. I mean, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah, I, I don't have the words for it. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Monica Eng with Louis Ziska, former USDA plant scientist and current associate professor at Columbia University. You addressed this a bit, but yeah, I've heard some people say that um, with the increases in CO2 and with the longer growing seasons in, say, the Midwest, it might lull people into some strange idea that climate change is actually good for agriculture in the long term. Is that a danger? It can be, and I don't mean to say that the change in climate is going to be universally bad on every circumstance. That would be silly. But if I deny the reality of climate change, then I also deny the reality of any potential solutions going forward. I can't begin a breeding program for selecting how plants might respond to more CO2 in an effort to pick out the best varieties of rice or wheat or or soy if, in fact, there's no climate change and, and carbon dioxide thing to begin to believe in because the politics blocks not only acknowledgement of the problem, but any potential solutions to the problem. And I understand that there was a CNN request to interview you that USDA denied? That's correct. That being said, I recently did a CNN interview with Dr. Gupta, and I think it will come out sometime in September. So... In some ways, now that you're gone from USDA, you have a little more freedom to speak out. I have a lot more freedom to speak out and say what I think. So if there are citizens out there who are concerned about this, what can they do? I think that the best thing that they can do is to be advocates for publicly funded research, period. And one of the advantages of being a federal scientist, despite what you may have heard, is that We have the funding. No one is hanging it over us. We don't have to respond in a certain way to meet a certain goal. And by that, I mean, if I was being sponsored by a major chemical company, my goal would be very different. If I was sponsored by an advocacy group, my goal might be very different. As a federal scientist, ostensibly, you're supposed to be free of all those influences so that you can make the best unbiased, objective decision possible. My objective is to look at it from the point of view of how is climate going to affect our ability to feed ourselves. And my goal is to take whatever expertise I have and to apply it to those challenges without fear of retribution, without fear that I'm going to be punished for doing so. And yet you, as a government-funded scientist, at least in this instance, felt there was some influence on the dissemination of your work. Yeah. It takes many years to build up integrity. 
it takes many years to build up a reputation for saying the truth. And it is heartbreaking to see how quickly you can lose all that. All it takes is one person willing to lie. And I don't think that is something that the American people, that anyone uh, who's a member of society should put up with. Well, Louis Ziska, former USDA plant scientist and current associate professor at Columbia University, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're more than welcome. That was Worldview contributor uh, Monica Eng talking with Louis Ziska, a plant scientist at the United States Department of Agriculture for more than two decades before he resigned. Very interesting report. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking about the U.S. empire. Before World War II, the U.S. held a lot of territories. The Philippines, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Alaska. After World War II, the U.S. cleaned up its colonial act and divested its empire in spite of unprecedented global influence. Or did the U.S. just hide its empire? I'll talk with the author of the new book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States, tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.